I'm going to read some verses from Psalm 32. It's a psalm of confession. There'll be a pause when we can acknowledge our sin before God before we continue with another couple of verses of the psalm. Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and didn't cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. O Lord Almighty, God of our ancestors, of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, and of their righteous offspring, you who made heaven and earth with all their order, who shackled the sea by your word of command, who confined the deep and sealed it with your terrible and glorious name, at whom all things shudder and tremble before your power, for your glorious splendor cannot be borne, and the wrath of your threat to sinners is unendurable, and yet immeasurable and unsearchable is your promised mercy. For you are the Lord Most High, of great compassion, long-suffering and very merciful, and you relent at human suffering. O Lord, according to your great goodness, you've promised repentance and forgiveness to those who've sinned against you. And in the multitude of your mercies, you have appointed repentance for sinners, so that they may be saved. Therefore, O Lord, you, the God of the righteous, have not appointed repentance for the righteous, for Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, who did not sin against you, but you have appointed repentance for me, who am a sinner. For the sins I have committed are more in number than the sand of the sea. My transgressions are multiplied. Lord, they are multiplied. I'm not worthy to look up and see the height of heaven because of the multitude of my iniquities, I'm weighted down with many an iron fetter so that I'm rejected because of my sins and I have no relief. For I have provoked your wrath and done what is evil in your sight, setting up abominations and multiplying offences. And now I bend the knee of my heart, imploring you for your kindness. I've sinned, O Lord, I've sinned. And I acknowledge my transgressions. I earnestly implore you, forgive me, Lord, forgive me. Do not destroy me with my transgressions. Do not be angry with me forever or store up evil for me. Do not condemn me to the depths of the earth. For you, O Lord, are the God of those who repent. And in me, you will manifest your goodness. For as unworthy as I am, You will save me according to your great mercy.
And I will praise you continually all the days of my life. For all the host of heaven sings your praise. Yours is the glory forever. Amen. Sorry, yes, Psalm 32, reading verses 8 to 10. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you and watch over you. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the man who trusts in him. Over the past few weeks, we've been unpacking a series of questions that were asked back in the summer last year. Issues that people wanted to raise about the Bible, about prayer, about the world, about faith. And tonight we come to the question, what was left out of the Bible and who decided? Quite a lot didn't make it into our Bibles, as it happens. The Old Testament Apocrypha contains between 7 and 18 books, depending on which version you read, that didn't make it into what's called the canon of the Old Testament. Books that were regarded as being inspired scripture and were therefore authoritative. The name Apocrypha means hidden things. And the books were given this name because they were withheld from general circulation. Earlier in the service we listened to the prayer of Manasseh. That was the long prayer of repentance that I read. It's a bit like a psalm. stands alone. It is attributed to Manasseh, a notoriously wicked king of Israel, who, according to the book of Chronicles, repented of his sins while imprisoned in Assyria. And it's one of a number of apocryphal works attributed to Old Testament characters. We've got the prayer of Manasseh, the wisdom of Solomon, the letter of Jeremiah, the prophecy of Baruch, and there are expansions of the books of Ezra, Esther, and Daniel. There are short stories, Tobit and Judith. There's a book called The Wisdom of Jesus Ben Sirach, also known as Ecclesiasticus. There are four books of Maccabees, which record events that took place in the 2nd and 3rd centuries before Christ, after the period covered by the historical books of the Old Testament. And oh, there's an extra psalm as well, Psalm 151. These books were excluded from our Old Testament on the basic rule of thumb that they tended to be written in Greek rather than in Hebrew or Aramaic, which were deemed to be the languages of Scripture. That's not to say that anything written in Hebrew automatically made it into the canon. In the time of Jesus, the Sadducees only accepted the first five books of the law of Scripture, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And during the first centuries of the Christian era, the rabbis were still debating whether Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, Ezekiel, should these really be in the Scriptures or not? There was a lot of debate about what was in and what was out. Then alongside the Apocrypha, you've got what's commonly called the Old Testament Pseudepigrapha, which is an ever-growing body of Jewish and Christian religious texts that never made it into the Apocrypha even, let alone the Bible. And they're called Pseudepigrapha because they're generally written under pseudonyms. We have one volume of what are called Apocalyptic, apocalyptic Literature and Testaments. They're roughly... Two dozen texts from the biblical period here, comprising heavenly visions, prophecies ascribed to biblical characters on their deathbed, retelling of Old Testament stories. Then you have a second volume of three dozen or so expansions of the Old Testament, legends, wisdom, and philosophical literature, prayers, psalms, and odes. Again, none of them composed in Hebrew. 
But, just to complicate matters, in 1947, in Qumran, the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in the Judea Desert, and these were written in Hebrew. Copies or portions of every Old Testament book were found, with the exception of the book of Esther. But alongside the biblical stuff, there is a myriad of other writings. There's the story of the origins of the community, its regulations and rules. There's poetry and prose about astrology, magic, apocalyptic dreams of world domination, biblical commentaries, descriptions of messiahs and antichrists, stories about angels and giants, a list of buried treasure, and the argument of points of which the community was at odds with the religious establishment in Jerusalem. These texts never made it into our Bibles because no one knew they existed after Qumran was destroyed. They were hidden for centuries, and because of their separation from Jerusalem, they would never have been considered orthodox anyway. Occasionally, you hear fantastic theories about how the Dead Sea Scrolls contained coded messages about the secret origins of the Christian church. Let me assure you, there is not a shred of truth in any of these rumours. Then, you've got what are called the New Testament Apocrypha, Seven fragments of unknown Gospels, including stuff about what Jesus is supposed to have done when he grew up. Stuff he's supposed to have said to his disciples in that gap between his rising from the dead and going into heaven. And as many as 25 other Gospels attributed to various people. You have the Acts of Andrew, of John, of Peter, Paul, Thomas, and the Twelve. You've got two apocalypses of Paul, two of Peter and one of Thomas and various other bits and pieces, including supposedly Paul's letter to the Laodiceans. Those of you who already find the Bible overlong with 66 books are a profound debt of gratitude to all those dedicated people who spent time discerning whether all these should go into the Bible or not and thankfully deciding that they shouldn't. It was debated over a period of centuries by a succession of ecclesiastical councils. It wasn't an easy process. A phenomenal amount of stuff was written down, which is amazing when you think about this is, this is pre-internet. Writing down was a laborious process. Making parchment or papyrus to write down was an expensive process. It wasn't easy to do, but people wrote loads of stuff for lots of people who couldn't read at all. For Christians, assessing does this get into the New Testament or not, the basic rule of thumb seems to, been, seems to have been, was this written by someone who knew Jesus when he was alive? Or had seen Jesus after his resurrection? Or had spoken to people who belonged in one of these two categories? But it wasn't a cut and dry decision. A hundred years or so after the time of Jesus, someone called Marcion said he was only prepared to accept his own edited version of Luke's Gospel, and Paul's letters, everything else as far as he was concerned, was unauthoritative. The world's oldest Bible is the the title given to Codex Sinaiticus. That is the most complete version we have of the Old Testament and the New. It dates back to the 4th century. It's not complete. The first part of the Old Testament from Genesis to Chronicles is missing. And it contains a number of what we would call apocryphal books. Two Esdras, Tobit, Judith, one of four Maccabees, the Wisdom of Solomon and Syrac. In the New Testament also contains a very popular writing called the Shepherd of Hermas and a polemical anti-Jewish text called the Epistle of Barnabas. So the first complete Bible has all sorts of stuff in it that we wouldn't put in our Bibles today. Codex Vaticanus can be dated to the same period. In the Old Testament it includes one and two Esdras, Syrac, Tobit and the letter of Jeremiah. Some parts of the New Testament are missing. 
It wasn't until 367 that we find for the first time a list of the New Testament books that corresponds to the 27 books in the New Testament we have today. But there was still an ongoing debate in the church about Hebrews, should that be in or not? James, Jude, Revelation. And to this day I'm told, have to check this Mary Breeze, that the Ethiopian church includes an additional 11 New Testament books in its canon. So why do we have four Gospels called Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, rather than say five Gospels of Thomas, Philip, Peter, Judas and Mary? Why go for these four and not any of the others? To some extent, we're indebted to someone called Irenaeus at the end of the second century who made a virtue out of the fact that there were four versions of Jesus' life that could be deemed to be reliable. He wrote, The Gospels could not possibly be either more or less in number than they are. Since there are four zones of the world in which we live and four principal winds while the church is spread over all the earth and the pillar and foundation of the church is the Gospel and the spirit of life, It fittingly has four pillars, everywhere breathing out incorruption and revivifying men. From this it is clear that the word, the artificer of all things, being manifested to the men, gave us the gospel fourfold in form, but held together by one spirit. Clearly these are arguments, making a virtue out of the fact that they just happen to be four gospels and finding valid reasons for their existence. Why four Well, despite what Irenaeus said about four being the inevitable number, it was just the number of reliable narratives about Jesus that were passed down. Mark was probably the first gospel to be written. And according to early tradition, he got his information from Peter. That's why people thought, yeah, Mark, Mark, that's a good gospel. And I hold to the traditional view that when they wrote their gospels, Matthew and Luke both drew on Mark and a collection of Jesus' sayings that they wove together with Mark's basic narrative. And I don't think it's too fanciful to suppose that Matthew, perhaps one of the twelve, was responsible for compiling that saying source. But it can't be proved, and many people would say, I'm going out on a limb here. Luke was not one of the twelve, but he maintains that he did his research thoroughly at the start of his gospel. And if you're not a hardened sceptic, you might be inclined to accept that claim at face value. He researched his stuff and wrote down what he thought was an orderly account. John is the odd one out. And his account of Jesus is markedly different to the other three. But it still has a clear ring of truth to it. The author of the fourth gospel is commonly identified with John, the brother of James, part of Jesus' inner circle. But there was also someone called John the Elder, who knew Jesus personally and was still alive at the end of the first century, and I'm inclined to accept the arguments of those who suggest that he was the eyewitness behind much of what we find in our fourth gospel. What marks these four gospels out from the two dozen or so others that are on offer? Simon Gathercole, a lecturer in Cambridge, has analysed the earliest summary of the gospel message, which we find in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul writes... What I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. That Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures. That he appeared to Cephas, and then to the Twelve. Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, perhaps 25 years or so after Jesus' death and resurrection. And he says, this is a traditional summary of the Gospel which was passed down to him might have been compiled as soon as months 
after Jesus died and rose again. And he says, this is what everybody preaches. This is the core message of the Christian gospel. Simon identifies four aspects of this summary of the gospel, which, to my mind, he persuasively argues, are characteristics which are unique to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Four characteristics which mark them out as being distinct and different from all the other gospels on offer. These four characteristics derived from 1 Corinthians 15 are, firstly, one, that Jesus is the Christ, the Jewish Messiah, anointed by the Creator God of Israel. Christ died for our sins, it says in 1 Corinthians 15. That is the title given to Jesus for the Jewish Messiah, the one anointed by Israel's God. There is continuity there with the God of the Old Testament. Secondly, Christ's saving actions fulfill Scripture. Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, Paul says. He rose from the dead, according to the Scriptures, Paul says. Thirdly, Jesus' death atones for sin. Christ died for our sins, it says in 1 Corinthians 15. And fourthly, resurrection. Christ was raised the third day. All of those four points are characteristic of the four Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. None of the other Gospels on offer contain all four of those elements. And his argument is that this is the core of Christian doctrine. These four things are the basic message about Jesus and the four Gospels, not only only were written by people who knew Jesus or knew people who knew Jesus themselves, but actually... When you analyse them, they weren't esoteric, they weren't particularly hard to understand, they weren't obviously unoriginal, but they were going back to Jesus saying, this is what Jesus did, and these four things about him. He was anointed by Israel's God. His actions fulfilled the Old Testament. He died to atone for our sins. He was raised the third day. The core of the Christian Gospels found in these four Gospels alone. They express the truth about Jesus and all that we need to know about him. Not everyone agrees with Simon, but though I'm not an expert in this field, I think he's absolutely right. What I want to leave you with tonight are the words with which Paul introduces that summary of the Gospel in 1 Corinthians 15. What does he say? I want to remind you of the Gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you've taken your stand. By this Gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Friends, this is good news. If you accept it, if you base your life upon it, if you hold fast to it through thick and thin, you will be saved. Doesn't go for the stuff on the table on my right. Some people find it interesting. Some people find it plain boring. Scholars get a never-ending succession of PhDs out of it. But the good news you will find in 1 Corinthians 15, in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, and the rest of the New Testament. It's not some fantasy. It's not the product of some ecclesiastical conspiracy. It's not a flight of fancy written by someone like Dan Brown. It's gospel truth. It's the power of God for your salvation. If you are prepared to believe it and accept it for yourself. Christ died for your sins. He rose from the dead to be your Lord.
He can change your life if you put your trust in him. It's all you need to know. It's God's message of salvation for the whole world. It's God's message of salvation for you.